Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling one 780 7277 Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com on the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of life Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. Glad to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook under LDS Leadership Principles. You can find this podcast at mormondiscussion.podbean.com as well as on iTunes. We also have our blog, themormondiscussion.blogspot.com. Today's guest is LDS author Brant Gardner. He is the author of The Gift and Power, Translating the Book of Mormon. He is also the author of Second Witness, Analytical and Contextual Commentary on the Book of Mormon. In both these books, Grant deals with the translation process, why we learn it the way we do, and what actually did occur in the translation of the Book of Mormon. And in the book Second Witness, he talks very much about putting the Book of Mormon in its contextual context within the Mesoamerica. He has a B.A. in University Studies from Brigham Young University and an M.A. in Anthropology from the State University of New York, Albany. We now go to our interview with LDS author, Brant Gardner. Brant Gardner, welcome to Mormon Discussion. Thank you. Glad to have you aboard. You have a book out, The Gift and Power, uh, the translation of the Book of Mormon, and it seems to be, at least for me, the book that I've noticed that speaks to the largest extent of the Book of Mormon. And so I want to I want to talk on a lot of questions about your book, but I want to at least give you a moment to start off and, and share with uh, my listeners uh, who you are and, and maybe a, a short bio of of some of the work you've done. I'm a hobbyist in LDS writing. I work with a software firm, but my academic background is in anthropology and ethnohistory. And it was that background and particularly a background in central Mexican history that got me interested in trying to see if we could correlate the Book of Mormon with what was going on in uh, Mesoamerica. The kind of result of that was a six-volume commentary called Second Witness that was published with Coford Books. And one of the things that I didn't do in that commentary was talk much about the process of translation and of course, you really have to understand a lot about the translation of the Book of Mormon, or you can't really talk about 
what you believe the Book of Mormon says or how it says it. So that kind of led to the Gift and Power book. So you wrote this book on the translation. You talk about maybe it wasn't something you covered in the uh, the previous six-volume set that you wrote. But specifically, I guess, speaking to what got you interested in the translation and what what um, impetus was there that to write this book was is there is there another book out there that talks about this subject? <laughs> uh, there are articles. This is the only book length treatment of the translation of the Book of Mormon that I know of. Um, like I say, there are, are some articles out there. Certainly, lots of people have speculated on how the Book of Mormon was translated, um, but but there's never been a very complete treatment of the information. And frankly, in this particular case, uh, the book covers a wide range of things related to the translation. So uh, there's a lot of historical background and things you have to talk about so that you can get to the question of how did Joseph translate the Book of Mormon. I joined the church at the age of 17, and the missionaries came into my home and taught me the discussions, and they taught me that Joseph used the Urim and Thummim. It was pretty obvious from the way they were teaching that they meant the Nephite interpreters. How how did the translation actually occur mechanically? Uh, there there isn't a simple answer to that because it changed. And, and probably the most interesting part of the translation is that when Joseph first received the plates, the evidence is he really had no clue as to how he was to go about translating them. And it appears that he actually was looking for someone else to help him translate. Uh, so the genesis of Martin Harris taking some of the characters. Uh, to the scholars in the East, to Samuel Mitchell and then eventually to Charles Anthon, uh, was apparently trying to get someone to help him translate. And it wasn't until after all of that happened and they came back and said, we don't know how to translate this, uh, that Joseph realized that the secular world wasn't going to help him and that the Lord was going to have to be the one to do it. Now, beginning at that point, then he realizes that these interpreters are probably something that are going to help. It appears that uh, they were used for some time uh, during the translation of the 116 pages that have since become lost. But after those pages were lost, the evidence is that he didn't use the Nephite interpreters anymore. He actually used a small stone that he would put in the crown of his hat. And it's a, a stone that he had had from before, and it's a method that he had used before uh, when he was uh, – and that's part of what I go into in the book is, you know, what the history is behind, you know, Joseph using these stones. But uh, it, it was something that he had seen before and understood partially, and then somehow the Lord was able to help him move that from – the way he used to know how to use them into using them as a mode of translation. You mentioned that there there isn't any good evidence that Joseph used the Nephite interpreters after the 116 pages. Do we have any evidence of all at all that that he used that instrument in the actual Book of Mormon that we have today, or is there really nothing out there that that leads to that? To my knowledge, there's no information that the Nephite interpreters were used in the translation of the text as we have it now. Uh, Moroni took back uh, the plates themselves, of course, for a time, and apparently took back the Nephite interpreters. And when the plates were given back to Joseph, there's no in- information that the interpreters came with them. So he was using the stone after that point. In LDS artwork, we uh, and, and, and you know where I'm going with this. So these are questions you get asked all the time, I'm sure. But in LDS artwork, we often portray Joseph looking at the plates, and we realize that at least – 
at least some of the time, that that's not the case. Do we have any evidence that at any point in the translation that the plates were sitting, Joseph, at least had them visible during uh, the translation process? I don't know that we have any evidence that they were visible for any part of the Book of Mormon that we currently have. The only time that there is evidence that Joseph Smith was interacting directly with the plates is in that time period when he's writing off the characters they're going to be taking to the scholars in the East. Uh, we know then that he was interacting with the plates because he was looking at them and trying to figure out what the characters were and writing them down. After that point in time, there's no firm evidence that he had the plates in a place where he could see them and, and give any information, and certainly not from the time that we were dictating any of the Book of Mormon that we have now. So how does the storyline then go from him using a seer stone in a hat to what we have, and I realize, you know, that if we look at Enzyme articles and we look in, in certain places that the church openly talks about the fact that he used a seer stone, but generally speaking, if we look at just the manuals used on Sundays in the three-hour block, it's pretty easy to come to the conclusion that we're talking the Nephite interpreters and that's solely the instrument God used. How do we go from him using a seer stone and a hat to the story being him using the Urim and Thummim that was found with the plates? Yeah, and I think that's... Uh, one of the reasons why I wrote the first third of the book uh, was to try and trace why those kinds of stories, you know, originated, what's behind them. And uh, the, the reason that all of those stories sort of come up is the same reason why we call it the Urim and Thummim instead of the interpreters or instead of the seer stone. And there is a point in time when the word Urim and Thummim, uh, you know, plurals in Hebrew become kind of this, you know, just a dual set uh, and gets applied to whatever instrument Joseph was using. That whole process, you know, covered the interpreters. It covered the seer stone. And what happened was someone made the connection between a mechanical device for receiving inspiration that Joseph was using and the same function that the Urim and Thummim served in the Bible. And so having made that connection, they begin using this term from the Bible because it is a more sacred, more understandable term. And a lot of what happens in the early church as they're working out their story and how to understand it and how to tell other people, they want to sacralize their history in ways that other people understand it. And one of the first things that happens is that interpreters or seer stones become the Urim and Thummim because that's a sacred topic that people will understand. In the same way, as they're explaining the way we get the information, uh, the important part of the translation was that it was a miracle that it was translated through the gift and power of God. The means weren't terribly interesting to anybody at the time. So what they wanted to do was make sure that that story was being told, and as it gets told, it shifts and it changes because of the nature of the people uh, that are telling it. And, we, and very, very early in 1836, we have record of Thomas Coe, who has at least heard at that time the idea that Joseph is translating by moving his finger along the plates uh, and reading off the characters. So those stories had begun to be told, at least in Kirtland, uh, and, you know, and very, very early. So it's just a question of, you know, how do communities develop the stories that they tell about these things? And what's the relationship of those stories to history? In the timeline of church history, 
this discovery of how the translation took place catches my generation very much by surprise. If we were to go back 50 years or 100 years, would the members of the church be aware of the actual translation method, or would it have caught them by surprise to know that a seer stone was used as well? Uh, certainly it would not have caught them by surprise if they were living in Joseph Smith's time. It began to change you know, quite rapidly after, uh, you know, that first generation passed away who actually knew what the situ, what, what had actually happened. So I'd say by the time you're hitting the late 1800s and the last of those, uh, who knew Joseph Smith were beginning to pass on, uh, at that point in time, that connection to that story was probably lost. Uh, you have the next generation, some of whom would even insist that the seer stone wasn't used because uh, it always said the Urim and Thummim. Um, so, you know, by that time, the story had changed enough that, you know, they would have been surprised. And I know, let's see, it was Francis Kirkham, I think, uh, who just was quite adamant that Joseph Smith couldn't have used the seer stone because he must have used the Urim and Thummim. The Nephite interpreters, which... And I know some people will consider this derogatory, but just for simplification, to call them spectacles. Yeah. And I know from what Charles Anthon said that the spectacles were quite large. And I also believe, if I'm not mistaken, that William Smith, maybe, the brother of Joseph Smith, made the comment that they were too big for Joseph to use comfortably. It seems like that's, at least in part, the reason why Joseph shifts from the Urim and Thummim or the Nephite interpreters to the seer stone. Is that the only reason? I know you mentioned that the angel Moroni took the place back, also took the Urim and Thummim back, and didn't give them back. But I thought I had read somewhere that uh, those were returned as well. Is that not the case? I uh, don't remember, actually. So, I, yeah, I don't – yeah, at some point they're taken away, and at some point Joseph is simply not using them. Uh, he does go back to the stone that he's much more familiar with. Uh, he does say that using the interpreters would hurt his eyes and that they caused uh, strain. But then again, he mentions the same thing of using the seer stone, that it would uh, be straining on his eyes to use it. So, yeah, I, I don't think that's the only reason. I think something else happened, most likely, that he didn't have them available. Um, I, I know at one point in time, if I remember correctly, uh, the, the original interpreters were set in a silver bow so that they would be called spectacles because uh, they were two that were set and, you know, you could see them as spectacles. I believe Joseph disassembled them uh, so that he could use them more like the process that he was more familiar with. Uh, but still, at some point in time, it turned out that the stone worked just as well. And I believe, firmly believe that the reason for that is that neither the interpreters or the stones were the thing that worked. It was Joseph as a prophet that worked, and those were just mechanical means that uh, sort of allowed him to know that he could do this process and gave him a, a way to be able to translate. I was rereading a couple chapters of your, of your book last night in preparation for this and was thinking about, uh, and as I was reading the chapter on Joseph's treasure finding, I shouldn't say it, uh, lost item finder, I guess is the word I think that you try yeah. to use, and it's, and it's kind of the, the way I try to see things too. But in, in reading that chapter, do you, I know you talk about both Sally Chase and her experiences. You talked about Joseph and some of the reports of things that he had helped find and where on her instances they weren't and on his instances they were. I just want your personal opinion. Do you believe that Joseph Smith actually had a gift, a spiritual gift, to be able to look at the seer stone and to actually see 
lost things that uh, that were missing that people came to him seeking? But yeah, I do. Um, I, I think there is some uh, ability that some people have that it's different from everybody else. Um, it, it certainly isn't well known. It isn't uh, incredibly well documented, but it's well enough known that the U.S. government sponsored uh, research into far-seeing uh, to use it for military purposes. Uh, that program was uh, abandoned after a few years because it isn't terribly precise. Uh, but there was a lot of information that came out of it that indicated that there are people that have some ability to see things that the rest of us don't see. And I suspect that Joseph was one of those. I was thinking as I was reading the chapter uh, on his ability to look at the seer stone and to find lost items. And you you write in there, you share some information that at least on a some kind of surface level, we know that Joseph's father, or at least we believe Joseph's father did water witching. We know that the, the Smith boys and their dad dig wells uh, for, for farmers and other pair them out. Do you feel like it's a natural, I mean, I was sitting reading the chapter last night, and here's what I was thinking. So you have... Joseph and his family who are water witching and they're having success at that. And today, you know, obviously we have science, we've got better explanations for things, but back then, at least in my mind, it would seem that this would be some mystical power. Is it easy to kind of transfer that over from water witching to saying, well, I, you know, I'm able to find water with a stick. Why shouldn't I be able to find lost items or, or be able to take this power and do bigger and better things with it? Does that make sense? It makes sense and it's part of the same uh, concept of how to tap into something other than the, you know, the natural world or what everybody else can, can do. And this is part of what people had believed not only through Joseph's times, but much, much earlier. Uh, there are a lot of people that had believed in this ability uh, to see things. And so one of the aspects and talents that somebody would have would be water witching. They would then have a different talent that was related and had the same kind of background to it, but it would be using some sort of stone to see. Uh, some Because it happened a lot in uh, Scotland and in uh, England, it was called Scottish Second Sight. And so there would be people that they would say, oh, he has the Scottish Second Sight. Uh, and many people who had used some sort of stone for some method of scrying. Uh, it's, it's a process that hasn't totally gone away. There are people even in the modern world uh, who say that that's something that they can do. And the whole tradition around crystal balls uh, has come up because that was something that was also used. Now, of course, it's been used as part of games and ways to bilk money from people. And, you know, that's the uh, illegitimate use of all of this kind of thing. But it goes back to the people's belief that that could happen. As you point out, people can go on YouTube and look at videos of people who are who are doing that. And it seems mystical and weird and, and unusual to us, and yet on some level we have to recognize that there are people who seem to have this gift to do it. It just seems like a natural transition for, for Joseph to go from being able to do this one thing to saying, hey, what else can I do, and, and seeing where it goes. And I was, I know in your book, and I know in other places where you've, you've shared some of your thoughts, that you make this... Um, definable difference between Joseph as a treasure digger and Joseph as a lost object finder. And I just wanted to see if if one takes all the source material and looks at it from an objective position, at least as objective as one can be, is it possible to see that Joseph 
is not so much a treasure digger, but is a lost object finder who, because his talent is so good, people then seek him out to find lost treasure. Does that make sense? Not only makes sense, I, I believe that's the way it went. Uh, for most, there were certainly a lot of people who were seeking for treasure, but a lot of the people who were seeking for treasure were seeking whether or not they had any way of seeing where it might be. They were all interested and they were digging all over the place. What would happen for many of them is they would then say, let's get somebody who can see things below the ground, who can find things. Let's get them to help us to see if they could find it. So uh, at least all of the records that we have of when Joseph got involved in anything that looked like treasure seeking, you know, we have somebody asking him to participate, which is hardly unusual for what was happening at the time. People who had those talents were asked to participate in the treasure hunting, and nobody saw that as a uh, a particularly unusual activity at the time. Well, I won't say nobody, not many. Is Josiah Stoll the only person we have on record coming to him to seek for treasure, or are there other instances of Joseph helping somebody to try and find some lost treasure in the earth? Yeah, I think that's the only one where we, we have enough information to know exactly what was happening. Uh, we have other records of Joseph in being involved with treasure hunting because of the nature of the, the, you know, the witness testimony that we have for those. Some of them I think are really hard to read because they're all long after Joseph has become infamous and the people who are telling the stories are telling them to somebody who really wants the dirt on Joseph. And so uh, these are people who are giving them the dirt they want and it's, uh, frankly, hard to know when they're telling a story about Joseph and when they're telling a story about themselves and what they participated in and projecting that onto Joseph, uh, sort of protecting their own uh, participation in that. So I think the sources are, you know, a little bit difficult to use historically. We're speaking with Brant Gardner today, author of The Gift and Power, translating the Book of Mormon. Grant, talking about sources and the ability to trust certain uh, witnesses and source material. One of the things that caught me off guard several years back as I was exploring on the Internet and not really aware of the exact uh, experiences Joseph had had uh, with the seer stone nor the translation method in and of itself, I remember coming across some uh, witness statements regarding the occult, circles in the dirt, uh, sacrificing animals, including uh, I think they mentioned a dog, and that kind of troubled me. Can you, can you speak just for a moment to where we get that material and why maybe it's not as trustworthy as, as one might think when they first come across it? Yeah, Erastus Hurlbut uh, wanted again to gather you know, dirt on Joseph, and so he went back, and this is again long after Joseph has become infamous as the finder of the gold Bible. Um, and he begins talking to people, and he wants to know about Joseph's involvement uh in uh the the treasure digging and if uh if you know anything about the way people collect this kind of information uh you can easily lead people to certain statements based on the way you ask questions and clearly the way that you would like them to respond and a lot of the responses that are coming i think give us authentic information of things that happened in that world of treasure digging but I'm not sure that they can be applied to Joseph Smith because of the nature of the way that they were solicited. In Joseph Smith's history by his mother, uh, Lucy Mack 
seems to indicate that there's very little going on in Joseph's childhood that is of notice. The only story she really takes time to share is the, the leg surgery, which, which we tell a lot in the church. And yet, in my mind, I feel like this, this scrying or use of a seer stone has to hold, and again, this is my view in the here and now, but has to hold weight as being just as influential and something worth sharing, just as much so as surgery. Why is it we get some stories and other things that we think are important are left out? Well, that's the uh, the problem of all history. Uh, all history that's written tells you what the person who wrote it thinks is important. And things that they don't think are important, they don't happen to mention. And in this particular case, I think it's quite telling that Joseph Smith's mother doesn't see this as uh, any different, you know, any great thing at all. This is just a thing. This is something that he did. Uh, and probably not terribly different from what other people were doing. It wasn't part of the story that she was interested in. We're with Brant Gardner, author of The Gift and Power, uh, the translation of the Book of Mormon. Uh, Grant, I want to kind of finish up with um, just talking a little bit about how we tell the story in church today and, and recognizing your thoughts on essentially sharing. Uh, I think in your book you say something along the lines of important stories, oh. importantly. And uh, in your process of, of sharing with us why we have the stories we do, it, it feels like to a lot of my listeners, it feels like others who encounter how these experiences actually took place. It feels like the church is hiding information. If I walk in, uh, into my church building, say, and I walk down the hallway, there's a chance I'll see a piece of artwork that depicts Joseph in the translation method that's different than what, what we would expect to find in, in the historical account. Why, is it fair to say that that's, that we shouldn't show it that way? Or are we making too big of a deal out of it? No, I, I certainly would like to see uh, more accurate representations, but I don't think that uh, you can actually say that the church is hiding anything. Uh, Sunday school classes are designed for teaching gospel principles, not history. And, and frankly, I would love to have a way that we were learning better history. Uh, but we don't have that many, you know, processes in the church where, uh, what we're trying to do is make sure that everybody understands the history correctly. And particularly because we're a lay church and all of our teachers are uh, the good people that we pick out of the ward, uh, many of them only know the stories they know. And so you don't get uh, lots of really good history because you don't have really good historians teaching your classes. Having said that, uh, the rest of the process is simply one that has gone on from the beginning of time with pretty much every organization and every religion and every country. As you have a history, you begin to tell the history in certain ways, and you create stories, and the ones you like get passed on. Uh, so the fact that uh, George Washington never chopped down a cherry tree uh, might be true. It doesn't mean that the United States is conspiring to keep evidence from us because we tell that story. Uh, fun story we tell it and it has a moral that we like and therefore we keep telling it certainly isn't true and historians would know that uh, i suspect that there are still parents who end up telling that story realizing that and, and this is just my opinion and it's just comes from a few little things i've heard but it seems like there's some new instruction on the way to kind of follow up with the new sunday school for the youth to also be implemented in with the adults so assuming that better information is coming or a more 
uh, flexible way of allowing some of these things to be talked about is on the way. And seeing that this will kind of hopefully fix itself uh, in the next decade or so. Looking back, I see three possibilities, and you're touching on one of those. One is that leaders are, they see Joseph sticking his head in a hat as something that we don't want to show investigators. Not that it's dishonest or anything else. We just, we have a message to portray and we don't want to do it in such a way that from the very first missionary discussion, we turn uh, investigators off from the gospel. You don't want it to be distracting. Right. So one option is, is that leaders are aware of the translation method, but in an effort to put the gospel message first, have, have left that out. Another one is that they're simply not aware of it as well. And I'm, and again, I'm not talking now. I, I think now we could say that leaders are, are much aware of what the translation method is. But going back 50 years or 100 years, looking at the translation method, option number two says that they, they just weren't aware that they spend so much time serving the Lord in their capacities that, that they don't have time to delve off into all these little side subjects as they're focused on just the main work of the building the kingdom. And so they're just not aware of it. And so it doesn't, it doesn't make its way out there. And, and then the third option, it just isn't important. It's just not crucial to the message. And so no matter what way we show it, it's okay. Could you speak maybe to those three and helping listeners who are maybe struggling with why this is? And I know I'm asking the same question five different ways, but I want to hit on it really hard because in the past, it's something that I've struggled with myself. Can you speak to those three options and, and maybe how they all maybe have a play and, and, just why we see things the way we see things. Yeah, as far as your second option, I mean, that's the uh, how do stories get changed over time and what does the community believe. Uh, it is the same reason that you have what are called hagiographies, uh, a biography of an important figure that is um, so worshipful as to not be a particularly good history. And certainly several of the uh, biographies of Joseph Smith fell into that we uh, we admire him so much that we kind of uh, put too much of that admiration in and not enough good solid work in the biography. And that certainly is changing and we're getting better uh, biographies now. Uh, obviously, Rough Stone Rolling being the prime example. So that's on the second. The first and third are really kind of related. And I think they're related in the way that the message of the church is that the – and this is frankly – you know, the original message and where all these stories started from. Everybody was concerned that you should know that the Book of Mormon was a miraculous translation. This is not a scholarly translation. The scholars did not know how to do it. They took the information to them. Scholars said can't do it. It went to the unlearned man. And so this is the will of the Lord behind the translation. And that's the crucial part of the message. That part, regardless of what the mechanics are, is what people really need to understand. And so I really think that as you're a missionary church and as you're telling people, the important thing is that the Lord is behind the translation. Exactly how the Lord was behind it, what mechanics he used, uh, really kind of a secondary issue in that question. What do you think Joseph meant by the Book of Mormon being the most correct book? In his mind... It was most correct because it had gone through the fewest human hands. It was the closest to the doctrine of God because there were fewer humans that had been uh, putting their hands on it and translating and retranslating it. You had a prophet of God who had written it on gold plates, and you had the gift and power of God that is giving it to Joseph to translate. Uh, so 
there there are fewer human touches than we get in any other scripture. And so it's more correct in that uh, the information that in there, the doctrine that's in there, has not gone through the possible human corruption that we've had in the scriptures. Brant Gardner, author of The Gift and Power. I want to I wanna kind of transfer over to a couple of other questions that are maybe a little outside the realm of your book, but I, I'm aware of your at least um, either being an expert or being a, an amateur expert of, of these areas. Uh, Quetzalcoatl is the great white yeah, god of the... Gotta, gotta, gotta catch you right away. Sure. This is the first lesson that my children had to learn to my wife. It's Quetzalcoatl. 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 Okay, I, I'm going to struggle to pronounce that, so I'm just going to say everybody that, does, but that, but my family can do it. Good, good. So from here on out, I'm just going to refer to him as the great white god of the Native Americans. And a lot of times in the church, we we look for evidences. We want things to be these connections that we can show that the things we believe in are reasonable, and that there's proof out there that the you know the LDS Church is the one and only true church. And so over the years, the great white God has been used often as an evidence of the truthfulness of the church. And I, I think you're one of the first people I've ever heard kind of shoot that down. Would uh, would you speak just for a moment uh, about why that's not a fair connection to make? Uh, the, the first place to start is John Taylor's statement, because he said, from all the evidence that we've seen, it appears that Quetzalcoatl was a remembrance of Jesus Christ, uh, something like that. Uh, and I think the important part of his statement is for the evidence that we have seen. And if you look at the evidence that he would have seen, it's been evidence that has been coming through, first of all, translated from Spanish to English. So it's the things that these English uh, historians were interested in. Secondly, it went back to Spanish fathers, and it was what they were interested in. And it was very selective, and what he doesn't know what most people don't know until you've kind of tried to figure out what's going on with those legends is that there are two sets of sort of Spanish interactions with this white god Quetzalcoatl and one set sees him as an absolute devil Uh, he's always black he's always uh, the idol he's never doing anything good Uh, and then in other Spaniards they seem to Christianize him and that's where we get the idea that Quetzalcoatl might be a representative of Jesus Christ. It all comes from a very specific set of Spanish fathers. When you look at the native legends that those Spanish fathers are basing things on, you can see that they have distorted some of the information. So by the time we get to linking up Quetzalcoatl and Jesus Christ, we're looking at English people who have made a connection between something Christian and Jesus Christ, who are looking at Spaniards who've made a connection between something in the native world and Christianity, and they've looked at the, the native things and pulled something out that wasn't there. Uh, so by the time you go back and reconstruct the original uh, information they were looking at, it, it doesn't look like anything Christian at all. Uh, Quetzalcoatl, one of his uh, aspects, you know, uh, shoots arrows at the earth to bring uh, pestilence. Uh, in his earthly aspect, he has an adulterous affair with a priestess. Uh, you know, there's just all kinds of things that really don't look particularly Christian. So there's been a little bit of cherry picking that has gone on. And then when you get to John Taylor, he says, you know, from what we see, they only saw that one side. 
So the Spaniards hugely overstate the case. Hugely, yes. Gotcha. Wanting to to maybe work towards kind of wrapping up, but I wanted to spend at least a, a chunk of time on this. John Sorensen was one of the first individuals, if not the first, to really make a connection with, uh, I believe, Central America, correct, in the location of the Book of Mormon. One of the first and certainly the one that uh, published the best explanation of yeah, it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to his book, uh, Mormon Codex, coming out. You, uh, you've also kind of followed up with him and in, in looking into the information that Brother Sorensen and others have put together and, and I've, I've heard some of your thoughts on, on the issue. We obviously have this debate that there were some early in church history who looked at, uh, both North and South America as being the, the place, places being spoken about in the Book of Mormon. In fact, that's the way I was taught it when I joined the church at the age of 17 and I'm only 34 years old now, so it's still, a relatively recent way of, of teaching where the Book of Mormon took place. You have uh, kind of a debate out there. Some people are talking about this heartland model, and, and I've heard lots of reasons why and why it doesn't work. But speaking to Central America, one of the things you've done is make some connections between what we see take place in the Book of Mormon and how it fits into Sorensen's model or close to it. Would you mind spending a few minutes just sharing with us some of those connections so that readers can start to see the Book of Mormon differently as they read it. Yeah, the idea is that what you want to do with the Book of Mormon is look at the events that are there and see if what the Book of Mormon is talking about reflects both culture and history of any particular area. Uh, And then, of course, things like the geography have to line up, but past that, you've got cultural information that needs to line up as well. And what you find is that the closer you look, the more that area of the world not only fits with what you see in the Book of Mormon, but probably even more importantly begins to explain certain things in the Book of Mormon. And one of the simple ones, uh, we've got this very interesting story where uh, the people of Limhi have been oppressed by the Lamanites in the land of Nephi, and they decide that they really are at their wits' end, and they want to get some help and have Zarahemla come down and free them. And so what they do is they send this party out to go find Zarahemla and say, come help us. So this rescue party goes out, can't find Zarahemla, but they do end up finding the remains of the Jaredites, and they bring all of this information back. Well, that's the story that we have, and that gives us information. But if you look at it, there's some problems with the story that are difficult to understand. Limhi is only the grandson of the man who came originally. Um, so, you know, you're just a couple of generations away from the people who left Zarahemla and went back to the land of Nephi. And it wouldn't be surprising for people to say, okay, how did we get here? You know, we we came over these mountains, we followed the river. So how do you find Zarahemla? You go up into these mountains, you find the river, you follow the river, and you can't miss it. It's out there on the left. You know, how do you not find the city? You know, if you find the river, you're going to find the city. It's just that simple. It so happens that in that area of the world, in the area where we believe the land of Zarah or the land of Nephi would have been, up in the Kuchumatanes Mountains, there are two rivers that start within 20 miles of each other. One of them is the Drigalva, that uh, we believe is the Sidon. The other is the Yosumacinta. And if you make a mistake and find the wrong river and follow the wrong river, 
then you don't see Zarahemla, and you end up in the land of the Jaredites, and in Mesoamerica, the land of the Olmec, which is the people that were there at that point in time. So here we have a geography where the geography and the story not only mesh, but the geography helps us understand why the story took place the way it did. Are there any others of note? There are several. It's just you know which which ones to talk about. Um, uh, a quick one, Ammon at the Waters of Sebus. Um, Ammon is coming to preach to the Lamanites, and the very first thing that happens is he gets offered the daughter of a king, which he refuses. And since he refused the daughter of the king, the Lamanites' king says, you know, I think I'll send you out on an errand where I've happened to kill everybody that uh, I've sent on this errand. Uh, so I'm going to send you on a suicide mission because you didn't marry my daughter. And then he goes out, and there's supposed to be these robbers that are robbing uh, the king's herds and flocks, whatever those things were. They scatter them, and then these robbers that are supposed to be stealing things don't steal anything because they scatter it, and they're just gone. And then they hang around just to see if anybody comes back. And because somebody comes back, uh, they end up getting killed for it. And then you go back to... Uh, the king, and of course we get the the scene with Ammon uh, where the king is lying on the ground uh, in the thrall of the Holy Ghost. And it mentions that the brother of one of the robbers is there in the king's house and is going to kill Ammon, and then he gets struck down. Okay, it's an interesting story, but it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Unless you put it into a Mesoamerican context where you know that there are sort of what the politics were that were going on. And in Mesoamerica, what you have are rival lineages that are trying to always uh, get their person, you know, their leader to be the king. And there's always contention in these rival lineages. And what it appears to be happening is that there is contention in this city. Uh, and there aren't any robbers. What these people are is, uh, you know, members of the rival lineage that are scattering the flocks to tweak the nose of the king. The king can't do anything about it because then there would be civil war. So to save face, he kills people that come back. So you get Ammon who comes in as an outsider, and the first thing he tries to do with the outsider is bring him in and tame him by bringing him into the family because if he's related, then he has to do what the king says. Uh, Ammon doesn't do that, and that means he's now kind of a loose cannon, so the king has this great idea. And he said, I've got this impasse that I can't do anything about, but he's not part of it, and he doesn't know anything. He doesn't know that you can't kill these people. I'll send him out there, and if he does anything like that, uh, I can always say, well, hey, he's Nephite. You know what Nephites do. Uh, so he sends him into that situation. And so pretty much everything that's happening uh, you know, indicates that you have a rival lineage there. That's why the brother of a robber is right next to the king, uh, because he's a powerful rival lineage. So all of that story is much better explained by the politics behind Mesoamerican kingship than it is by just the story that we see in the Book of Mormon. Gotcha. And I know there's numerous others. Are these included in your six volumes, Zach? Yes, they are. Okay. So, excellent. Um, I want to ask one other question, and that is, I've heard you speak about, when talking about um, the Lamanites and Nephites in the Book of Mormon, uh, the Lamanites taking on a dark skin and the Nephites having a, a white skin, I've heard you talk uh, at length about that not really being an indication of skin color. wonder if you might share just a moment on that, um, your thoughts on, on the skin color in the Book of Mormon and what that actually means. Yeah, um, and I'll give you a little history about why I was looking at that. Uh, 
like everybody else who hears that story, I was understanding that there was a pigmentation change. Uh, and I was trying to figure out what the text said about it. So I said, well, I really ought to go look through it and see if I can find, you know, where the text specifically talks about pigmentation changes. And what I found is that it isn't there. You cannot find any story in the Book of Mormon that mentions a visible change, uh, you know, between Lamanite and Nephite. And in fact, there's a particular case that looks like it might have been because uh, Captain Moroni has to go find a uh, deserter Lamanite so that he can pull a trick on the Lamanite guards. And you think, well, of course he's going to, you know, get somebody because it's dark skin and then they're going to believe it. The problem is he has Nephites go with him. So, you know, if this one black guy shows up with three white guys, uh, they're still going to get the idea that this isn't this, the right thing. Um, so even in that case, although he needed a Lamanite, it appears that because it was the Lamanite who was doing the talking, he needed it for the accent, not for the physical features. And then if you look through everything else, uh, everything is metaphorical. Uh, you know, if, if you, if every place where it said their skin was black, you said their heart was black, uh, we wouldn't have this problem. It's just that the modern reader, because of all of the racial issues we've had, as soon as we see skin and black, our feelers go off and we assume uh, that it has something to do with pigmentation. Uh, but, it, but it's all a metaphor. You know, go through and replace every one of them and heart made black would work just as well. Uh, and we never assume that there really is such a thing as a black heart. Gotcha. And that would make perfect sense, too, when we consider the change of of it at one time saying a white and delight some people and that now saying a pure and delight some people uh, in the Book of Mormon. Right. Brent Gardner, author of The Gift and Power, translating the Book of Mormon. Grant, where can they pick up that book and your other book, Second Witness, uh, the six-volume set? Where can they get those at? Uh, the best plug that I can give is to the organization FairLDS.org. They have a bookstore. And uh, they tend to sell them at a discount, plus it's a good cause. So they usually have them, usually have them at less than other places do, and uh, good, good cause to support. Thank you, Brent Gardner, for being on Mormon Discussion. We appreciate having you. Thank you. Come thou fount of every blessing, to my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming love I raise my Ebenezer Here by thy great help I've come And I hope by thy good pleasure Safely to arrive at home Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God to rescue me from danger Interposed his precious blood 
Sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, clothed then in blood-washed linen. How I'll sing thy sovereign grace! Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransom soul away. Send thy now to carry me to realms of endless day Oh to grace how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be let thy goodness like a fetter Bind my wandering heart to Thee Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it Prone to leave the God I love Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it Seal it for Thy courts above Here's my heart Oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. 